0: You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. It's a testimony to your faithfulness, Faith Church, that you and we have now prayed around the world. Just let that sink in for a second. Prayed around the world. And you know what we're going to start doing next week? We're going to start praying around the world again. And we're just going to keep doing that. Until Jesus returns or he calls us home. If you have your, uh, your Bible or your Bible app, if you'll take that and turn with me to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is our text this morning. If you don't own a Bible, we've got many guests in the house this morning. Great to have you with us. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. That's our gift to you with no strings attached. You'll find Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. You can take one now, or you can take one on your way out of worship today. And if you don't know your way around the Bible that well, the passage that we'll be studying will appear here on the screen so you can follow along with us. If you are willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for His people. So listen carefully to these words recorded for us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-10. to 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, with uh, the season of Christmas lists upon us, this seems a fitting passage for us to reflect on for a few moments this morning. We're we're coming into that time of year where it seems like everyone lives by trying to get everyone else to buy things, right? By trying to get everyone else to buy things. This stretch between Thanksgiving and Christmas has become for many people a season of undisciplined spending Excessive debt, the selfish accumulation of stuff. And why is that? Well, it's because we have been convinced by the commercial racket, by the mantra that we will be more satisfied with more stuff. More is better. Much more is best. So in this season of commercial racket, we need to turn up the volume on the Scriptures and we need to hear the Bible's insistence on simplicity. We need to hear the Bible's call to contentment. One of the most helpful exercises that Jamie and I have ever done in the history of our marriage was packing our suitcases for our move to New Zealand. It was 10 years ago, 2012. We were living in Alabama at the time. I had just finished uh, graduate school, my master's degree there in Birmingham, Alabama at Beeson Divinity School and had been accepted as a doctoral student to the University of Otago in Dunedin, New Zealand. So this was a very exciting time for our family, but it was also quite stressful. Because there were so many unknowns, so many things to think about. How in the world were we going to get to the other side of the planet, endure so much flight time, get through all of those airports with two small children who both at the time were under the age of three? Even if we arrived safely and sanely in New Zealand, where were we going to live? We had never even visited the country. How were we going to get around We didn't have a car. I had never driven on the other side of the road. Nor had Jamie. Heck, she can barely drive on this side of the road. I'm just kidding, babe. Sort of. But the most helpful part of it was packing. We had seven suitcases. And into these seven suitcases, we needed to cram everything we thought our family would need for the next three years. And you know what we learned through that exercise? We learned that there are a lot of things that we can live without. We learned, as we lived in the land of the long white cloud, as New Zealand is sometimes called, We learned, we experienced the very truth that is revealed to us in this passage we're studying today. We learned about the great gain of living with less. See, our time in New Zealand, those were some of our our leanest years. We had very little money, very few possessions. But we look back on those years as some of our happiest years. We learned about the great gain of living with less. That's what Paul will teach us about in 1 Timothy 6 this morning. First, a bit of context about this letter that we call 1 Timothy. This is written by the Apostle Paul, the great pastor, missionary, church planter. He's writing to a young man in ministry named Timothy. Paul had stationed Timothy in a metropolis, a great area known as Ephesus, ancient Ephesus. So this was a huge responsibility for a young man in ministry. Ephesus, because of its strategic location on land and sea routes, it was a center of trade. People from all over the world came to Ephesus. So as you can imagine, there were a variety of problems that presented themselves in Ephesus. One of those problems was a group of false teachers that were traveling from house to house. They were proclaiming a message that was a fascinating message but it was false. It was at odds with the gospel. And one of the things these teachers were doing is they were asking other people to pay for their teaching. See, they had the appearance of godliness, but actually they were all about greed. They were going from house to house, these scammers, as it were, And they were asking people to pay them for their teaching. So in the city of Ephesus, there was much false teaching. There was much confusion and conflict surrounding the subject of money and possessions. So here in 1 Timothy 6, our text for today, Paul is is going to teach us, as he taught Timothy, he's going to teach us how Christians ought to think about money. How we ought to think about and live with our money. And we can divide this passage into two parts. Part one, the paradox of contentment. The paradox of contentment. Part two, the pit of avarice or extreme greed. So contentment and avarice. First, the paradox of contentment. Just one verse to get us rolling here. Look at verse six with me. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So here is the paradox. Now, what do I mean by this term paradox? Well, a paradox is something that seems, at first glance, it seems absurd. But upon further investigation, we find that it's true. See, the the commercial racket, the mantra of the day is, you will be more satisfied with more stuff. But what Paul is trying to teach us here is that you will be more satisfied, get this, with less than what you have." You will be more satisfied with less than what you have, or you will be more satisfied as you cultivate contentment. Now we first need to understand what he means by this term godliness, because he talks about godliness with contentment. So first of all, what is godliness? This is a really important term in 1 Timothy. It's sort of shorthand for Christian existence. You could think of it this way. Godliness is right belief translated into right behavior. It's the ongoing application of the gospel in every sphere of life so that your and my entire life, entire existence is pleasing to God. That's godliness, this ongoing translation. So godliness includes both the inner element of belief or faith and the outer element of good works, the way we live our lives on a day-to-day basis. And Paul teaches us that godliness, Christian existence, includes contentment. The Christian life is the contented life. And there is great gain in this. Now this reminds me of another passage in another one of Paul's letters. In what must be one of the most misquoted or taken out of context verses in all of the Bible. Philippians 4.13 you know Philippians 4.13? Most of us have quoted Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Him, through Christ who strengthens me. And we've quoted it as we're getting ready for the football game. Or we've, qu- we've quoted it when we're approaching like mile 20 of the marathon. Or we're hyping ourselves up for the heavy barbell. Or whatever the case might be. But in context... When Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he's not primarily talking about physical strength. He's not helping us get hyped up for the big game. He's talking about enduring financial hardship. Look at the passage for yourself. Look at the context of Philippians 4. I have learned, Paul says, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, to be content, to be content is to say, I have nothing and still somehow be able to say, I have everything because I have Christ. And He is the one who satisfies my heart. Christ is my constant. Christ is your constant. Circumstances change. Nice houses can be destroyed by storms. We've seen that in recent days. New cars can be wrecked. Money can be lost, squandered, stolen, and even when it's not, money still is limited in its value. Look at what Paul says in the second couple of verses here, back to our text in 1 Timothy 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain, verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. Do you see what he does here? He pinpoints two moments the moment you and I entered this world, and the moment we're going to leave it. And he helps us see that in both of those moments, we stand empty handed. About a month ago, we had a beautiful baby boy born to a family here in Faith Church. That little boy came into this world with nothing. This past week, I had two memorial services that I officiated. Buried two people. That brother and sister, when they left this world, they had nothing in their hands. They went into the visible presence of Jesus. They took nothing with Him. Also this past week, I sat with a dear lady who knows that she does not have long to live. You know, we tend to think of death, that doorway, that inevitable doorway. We tend to think of it as a place of darkness. But the truth is, the closer you and I get to that door, the more clearly we can see the things that truly matter. And money, earthly possessions, not among the things that truly matter. At the end of... His great book, The Hobbit, Tolkien tells about the final scene where the battle has been fought, but it's been a great cost because Thorin Oakenshield, who's the leader of the dwarves, if you know the story, he's been mortally wounded. Now, if you've never read The Hobbit, it's, a, it's about a quest for treasure, among other things, it's a warning to the reader about the dangers of avarice, of greed, of dragon sickness. So it's fitting that in the final scene of the story, the heroes, their conversation goes like this Farewell, Bilbo, Thorin says. I go now to the halls of waiting to sit beside my fathers until the world is renewed. I leave now all gold and all silver. And I go where it is of little worth. Bilbo knelt down on one knee, filled with sorrow. Farewell, king, under the mountain, he said. This is a bitter adventure if it must end so, and not a mountain of gold can amend it. And then Thorin says his final words. If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. But sad or merry, I must leave it now. Farewell. There's something about death. The closer we get to it, the more clearly we can see the things that truly matter. Paul is trying to help us see it now. You came into this world with nothing. You will leave this world with nothing. That then should have a profound effect on the way we live our lives here and now, which is what he shows us in verse 8. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 8 in the message. If we have bread on the table and shoes on our feet, that's enough. That's enough. So look at Paul's argument here in verses 6 7 and 8. It goes something like this. Verse 6, believers walk the path of godliness, the path of eternal life. Christ is our constant. Christ is all we need. Verse 7, the things of this earth are in fact the things of this earth. They have no eternal value. Therefore, verse 8, we don't need much here and now. We don't need much here and now precisely because we're not placing our hope in the here and the now. Now, we want to be not just hearers of the word, right, but doers of the word as always. So let's ask a few questions. Let's think through some practical matters here. What are the implications of this argument in verses 6 through 8? What are the implications for us? Is Paul teaching us that it is wrong to be wealthy? Is Paul teaching us that it is sinful to have more than life's basics? Possibly. Possibly. But not necessarily. Look again at verse 8. He doesn't say we have food and clothing to have more than these necessarily is sinful. He doesn't say that. Rather, he says, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Or to paraphrase Philippians 4, I am content. I am satisfied whether I have much or little because always I have Christ. Or more accurately, Christ has me. He is caring for me. He is providing for me. So the issue that Paul is warning us about here is desire. It's a desire to acquire for yourself more and more and more. And that's what he goes on to warn us about in the second part of the passage. The paradox of contentment. Now, secondly, the pit of avarice or extreme greed. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So here we see very clearly that the issue is desire. The heart of the matter is the heart. Look at the language Paul uses, the desire to be rich, the love of money, the craving for riches. The vice we must avoid is avarice, greed, being consumed by a desire to acquire for ourselves more and more. And notice also, Paul shows us what that desire acquires. What it actually brings to us. It causes people to fall. To fall into temptation. Into a snare, a trap. It even causes people to wander away from the faith. This desire for more and more money. It will not get you money. It will cause you to fall. It will cause you... Ruin, Paul says. Now, how? How does that work? Well, think about it. If you crave money, if you love it, if you will do anything to get it, then you'll do anything to others to get it. You will exploit people. You will harm them emotionally, perhaps even physically, if they stand in the way of what you desire most. It will not only ruin your life, it will ruin the lives of all those around you. You will work your whole life trying to have money. And the result is that the money will have you. It will trap you. You will become its prisoner. So how do we avoid this pit? How do we avoid this pit that will not only ruin us, but it will ruin all those around us? Paul tells us at the end of 1 Timothy 6, he tells us how we are to live, those of us who are rich, his term. Now, we might push back on that term a bit and say, "Yeah, don't think of myself as rich, never thought of myself as wealthy. But as Americans, we are among the wealthiest people in the world. So what he says in 1 Timothy 6 applies to us. And he's going to show us that really there, there are only two options. If we want to show that we're not the type of person who's consumed by greed, consumed by this desire to acquire more and more, we really only have two ways of proving that. One would be we just stop working. Stop working, stop earning, acquire nothing. And then, can't possibly be driven by the desire to acquire, right? But that would go against other parts of God's Word that reveal the goodness of work. God has given you talents. He's given you gifts and opportunities. It's good for you to work, to provide for your family, to contribute to the flourishing of God's creation. So really then, that first option of just not working, not acquiring anything, that's not a biblical option either. We actually only have one option. If you want to show that you are the type of person who is not dominated by greed... Not consumed by the desire to acquire. The only option you have to prove that, to show that, is to work and get and give. That's how you show it. See, we tend to try to simplify things here. We think in these terms, I can't possibly be a greedy person because my income is less than a certain amount. Or my square footage is less than fill-in-the-blank. So therefore, I'm I'm not greedy. We're missing something there. You can be a wealthy person without being greedy. Conversely, you can be a greedy person without being wealthy. You can love money without having it. But you can also have money without loving it. The way you know if you love money is do you give your money away? Do you give your money away? Look at the very end of chapter 6. Here's what Paul says to those of us who are rich in this present age as Americans. That certainly applies to us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy... They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly, truly life. So you see, there are actually two types of giving that Paul calls us to here. The first is giving thanks to God. It's a life of gratitude. That's how you show that you're not driven by greed you realize that everything you have is a gift from the Lord. That He is the one who has provided everything. When we forget that, we very quickly become both prideful and greedy. We begin to think this way. I'm the one who earned this job. I'm the one who built this company. I'm the one who got us this far. I deserve this salary. I deserve this lifestyle. Maybe you did build the company. Maybe you did. But who gave you that intellect? Who gave you the opportunities you've had in your life? Including the opportunity for a good education. The job opportunities that you've had throughout all of your days. Who gave you all of those? What if you had been born in the Solomon Islands that we prayed for last Sunday? What if you had been born in Europe in the middle of the plague... Everything you have, including the timing and location of your birth, your intellect, all the opportunities that have come your way and mine, God is the source of all of them. So we first give thanks to Him and we live a life of gratitude. That's the first type of giving. The second type of giving is giving to others. Verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. While the Bible doesn't answer this question, exactly how much should we give? It does teach us that we should give regularly and sacrificially. So how do we know if we're giving sacrificially? If there are things in your life that you want to do but can't do because of your generosity, then you're giving sacrificially. I say that again. If there are things that you want to do but can't do because of your generosity, that's how you know you're giving sacrificially. That's the type of life that we are all called to as followers of Jesus. Why? Because when we give, we become like the God who gives. The God who has given us everything. He gave us life. He gave His own Son to redeem us. He's given us the talents, the abilities that we have. When we give, we become like the God who gives. And we show the world the generosity of God. At the outset, I talked about our time in New Zealand. Just before we moved to New Zealand, as I was finishing up graduate school, I spent a good chunk of a summer in London, and I had the opportunity while I was studying there to visit the home of John Wesley. John Wesley, as many of you will know, was a co-founder of the Methodist movement, and his home has been well-preserved. It's it's a pretty incredible thing. You feel like you're stepping back into time. Wesley was a great evangelist, a great Christian leader. He was known for many things, one of which was his attitude toward money. His attitude toward money. Listen to this in closing. In 1731, Wesley began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give away. Give to the purpose of gospel ministry, give to the poor, just give away. In the first year, his income for the year was 30 pounds, and he found he could live on 28, so he gave away just 2 pounds. You must start somewhere. In the second year, his income jumped to 60 pounds. So his income doubled, but he held his expenses even. So that year he gave away 32 pounds. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds, and he gave away 62. In his life, Wesley's income advanced to as high as 1,400 pounds per year, but he rarely let his expenses rise above 30 pounds. When Wesley died in 1791 at the age of 87, only a few coins from his dresser were mentioned in his will. Most of his money that he had earned in his life, he had given away. This was a wealthy, wealthy man, but he was not a greedy man. Wesley had money. Money did not have him. Does it have us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Even, and perhaps even especially, in moments like this when it convicts our hearts. We trust you, God. We see that Christ is our constant. And so, when our earthly circumstances are good and when they're bad when there is abundance and when there is need we can be content. We can be satisfied because always we have Christ. So Lord, I ask you to loosen our grips on the things of this world. We came into this world with nothing and one day we will leave it in the same way that should affect the way we think about our possessions here and now. Loosen our grip. Help us to live lives of gratitude and generosity. Help us to be more and more like the God who gives. The God who gives all. Thank you, God, for your generosity. Demonstrated supremely in the giving of your own son for us. His name we